0: Hey guys, welcome. We're back. (laughs) We're airing. We're live. We're live on all our networks here. Let me get my banner going. (laughs) My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. Um, We're on this late again. We're on this late because we had issues with the internet for the actual show we did an hour ago at at, 6.30 to 7.30. But uh, I wanted to have a a good show come out, you know, because you guys were very, very patient. There were six or seven of you listening consistently through all that mumbo-jumbo, and so I decided to go ahead and uh, read tonight. Why not? You know, we'll read a story tonight. We're working through that Christmas book, and I thought I would read that tonight. So, welcome, welcome, welcome. Like I said, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. I'm going to be reading to you, so you don't even have to look at me. All you got to do is sit back, put put your fuzzies on, and uh, drink your hot cocoa. It's Christmas, right? Trim your tree, do whatever. Well, it's not quite Christmas, but... For those of you that have a tree up, you know, uh, trim your tree, do whatever. And we're going to tell some Christmas stories, but we're going to tell some spooky Christmas stories. Spooky. Last time I read this book on Sunday, we were talking about Krampus and other creatures, and we're still in the middle of talking about other creatures. So that's what I'm going to be talking about primarily tonight, Is we're going to continue that read, and I'll read uh, for about an hour out of this book. And uh, uh, it is written by one of our frequent guests, Sylvia Schultz. It's an excellently written book, and she's done a lot of research. And so it's Dark Tales of the Winter and Yuletide is uh, primarily what it's about. So uh, when we getting into that, we'll give people a few minutes to realize that I'm on and check their email and whatnot so that I could do this. But uh, I apologize for the show earlier. Uh, we had internet issues. I thought maybe we could get through them and everything sounded good, but it did not. So I know it hurt your guys' ears, and I'm sorry, so uh, we're going to try and get uh, that gentleman back on to be a guest. But tonight, I'm going to read, okay? I'm going to make it up to you. I'm going to read the book. So let me check my messages really fast, and uh, hopefully he'll reply. (laughs) You seem real understanding. So uh, give it a couple more minutes, and I will start reading this book. Three more minutes, and we'll get powered up, and uh, we're not even halfway through, really. We we have about nine hours left on this book, so we got a ways to go. You know, that's nine days worth of reading, and then usually it's a it's a Sunday read. So you know, that's we're trying to get this to go through Christmas, essentially. And of course, Christmas Eve, I won't read about creepy things. It'll be Christmas Evey things. So, um yeah. So I'm gonna power up my tablet here, so we can get rolling. And uh, yeah, we'll continue from where we left off in the book. And uh, we had already talked about Krampus and my pronunciations of some of these things are hilarious too so you guys might get a good laugh about it especially some of the Norwegian and German creatures (laughs) all right let me wait for this thing to power up I have a really old tablet so bear with me um but uh it was just one of those nights for the internet and uh it happens it doesn't happen very often anymore but it does happen and uh like I said, hopefully we can get that guest back on. But here I am, and I'm here to entertain. It's what I do. I am the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state, which means no matter where you are in the state of California, we can uh, assist you. It might take us a couple hours to get to you, but uh, we can assist you. So uh, look us up on Facebook. Look us up on uh, Twitter. You know, We're all over the place. You can find us under California Haunts. You can find it under my name. You can find it... Uh, uh, you can find this over on YouTube under California haunts radio. Okay. Um, yeah, so that, that's pretty cool. But anyway, I want to welcome you guys tonight. And if you're watching tonight, if you're watching from Facebook and you like what you hear, please be sure to hit that follow button. Uh, we're looking for followers. If you're, if you are watching from YouTube, uh, there's that little ghost in the bottom right hand corner that you can uh, click on and that'll subscribe you to our channel. We have 450 uh, videos over there of varying subjects, and I think you'll find something that you like. All right. Okay. So let me get this thing going, and uh, we're going to be reading some spooky Christmas stories. Here we go. And again, you'll probably get a good laugh because my pronunciation of some of this stuff is, is outrageous. So. do, <laughs> do. I have an old Kindle, so please be patient. I have an old old Kindle, but an old tablet, so please be patient. Okay. Really? There we go. All right. So we're going to be talking about some different Christmas creatures that are legendary in other countries, and maybe some over here as well. So, uh, like I said, we already talked about, <clears throat> excuse me, we already talked about Krampus. So now we're going to Turkey. So Karenkonkolos Konkolos, the Turkish Christmas Sasquatch. The Kara Konkolos, it's a tall, hairy ape-like figure that stalks Bulgaria and Turkey. In Turkey, it appears in the first ten days of Zemheri. The dreadful cold, in other words, the bitter heat, the bitter heart of winter, from December 22nd to January 2nd. In Turkish folklore, the karen imitates the voices of loved ones to lure people outside into the cold night. The karen kankulos hangs out on street corners at night and snags passing strangers to ask them odd questions. If you refuse to answer, the karen will strike you dead. So it's in your best interest to just go ahead and try to come up with an answer. And make sure the word black is somewhere in your reply. In Bulgaria, the Kirin Kankalos are kept at bay by the custom of kukri. This involves dressing up in funny costumes and putting on bells to scare away evil spirits, including the Kirin (laughs) Kankalos. Here we go. Kali Kanzarvoi. Okay. As I tried. Okay. The holiday demons of Armageddon. The Kali Kali Kantzairoi are Greek demons who can vary in appearance. Sometimes they are described as gigantic hairy demons with a pair of horse legs and boar tusks, and at other times they are just described as small, black, satanic-looking imps. They are said to eat frogs and other adorable woodland creatures. According to Greek folklore, the Kali Kantzairoi spend most of the year living underground, sawing at the trunk of the world tree. The world tree's trunk connects the earth to the heavens and keeps the heavens from crashing down onto the earth. In other words, the the, 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 the contoroi I finally got spend all year long trying to destroy the world. They are usually ne- nearly finished on Christmas Eve, but they are allowed to come up to the earth's surface during the 12 days of Christmas. So at dawn on Christmas Day, the goblins come topside and wreak all kinds of havoc, mayhem, and murder if they can get away with it. Fortunately for the world's continued existence, the damaged trunk of the world tree heals itself completely during the time the demons are away on the surface. On January 6th, the demons return to the underworld and start their destruction of the tree trunk once more. Any child born within the 12 days of Christmas ran the risk, when reaching adulthood, of turning into a... <laughs> of turning into one. I'm just going to say one. Well, I'm not going to try that themselves. The antidote for this was to swaddle the baby in wisps of straw or braids of garlic, and to singe the child's toenails. Fortunately, there are ways to protect yourself against them. One is to leave leave a Yule log burning for all 12 days of Christmas, so the demons can't enter your house through the chimney. Another method is to toss a pair of smelly old shoes onto a fire. The stink of burning sweat and shoe leather repels the demons, possibly because it reminds them of the stink of the underworld. Another way to protect yourself against a murderous (laughs) Kali Kansaros is to leave a colander on your doorstep. A Kali Kansaros can't count above two, because three is a holy number. Pronouncing it will make the demon explode. Pronouncing it will make the demon explode. So it sits on the doorstep all night, trying in vain to count the holes in the colander, and completely forgetting that it wanted to get into your house to kill you. Werewolves, not just the full moon. Werewolves have actually been part of the Christmas horror scene since the Middle Ages. Klaus Magnus, a Swedish folklorist, wrote in the World Encyclopedia of Christmas that werewolves gathered on Christmas night to rage with wondrous ferocity against human beings, attacking their homes and devouring the inhabitants. That's in Prussia. Okay, in Prussia, Livonia, and Lithuania. Okay. Even in modern times the belief persists that simply being born on Christmas Day can turn someone into a werewolf. As explained in the 1961 film The Curse of the Werewolf, being born on December 25th is a mockery of Jesus Christ and therefore deserves punishment. As if being totally as if being totally screwed on birthday presents isn't punishment enough. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. But Santa is not the only supernatural being out and about during Christmas season. The darkest time of the year is a perfect place for all kinds of monsters to hide. So you better watch out. There are fates worse than a stocking full of coal. In the bleak midwinter, unsettling things that happen in the dark of the year. The sun sets early these days, sets early these days, and many things can hide in the shadows of a long winter's night. The chill in the air can seep right into your bones if you're not careful. So don't wander too far from the safety of the hearth. You never know what might be lurking in the frozen depths of winter. The Christmas Tree Ship The Christmas tree was introduced to America from Germany in the mid-19th century. In the beginning, presents were wired to the branches of the tree instead of being placed underneath it. Small boxes of candy and other treats were used to festoon the tree, and it was further decorated with tiny lit candles. By the late 19th century, the custom of decorating a tree for the holidays was firmly entrenched as tradition in America, and by the early 20th century, ships' captains in the Great Lakes were doing a booming business delivering Christmas trees. Schooners would pick up a load of trees from northern Michigan and Wisconsin in mid-November, just before the coming winter storms, and ice made travel on Lake Michigan too hazardous. They would bring those trees to towns along the shores of the Great Lakes. In Chicago, most vessels sold trees directly from their berths along the Clark Street docks on the Chicago River. The crew of the schooners would decorate their vessels with electric lights strung from bow to stern, turning the entire schooner into a floating Christmas ornament. Most of these operators sold their cargo to wholesalers and stores, but other captains invited their customers to come onto the ship and choose their trees from the selection on board. Stepping onto such a boat must have been a true delight the soft glow and sparkle of the lights, the sweet fragrance of the evergreens, the anticipation of choosing the perfect tree. In addition to the Christmas trees, there were wreaths, garlands, and other holiday decorations, often made by the wives and children of crew members to help the family holiday business. One of the captains of these beloved ships was Herman Schudemann. During his long career as a late-season tree captain, he commanded several schooners that carried Christmas trees to Chicago, including the George Wren, the Mary Collins, and the Bertha Barnes. The Schuinemans lived in a German neighborhood in Chicago <clears throat> on Clark Street. This was a perfect location for a ship's captain as there were many sailors in the community from which to choose, cr- choose a crew. The Germans and Scandinavians of Chicago were seafaring men. The blood of their Viking ancestors with still rich within, rich within them. Some of the residents of this neighborhood were third and fourth generation mariners. Schwineman had his share of adventures and misadventures as as a Great Lakes captain. His ship, Mary Collins, sank when it crashed into the shoreline in Upper Michigan. Since it sank in shallow waters, all on board were rescued. Running into shore kind of makes Captain Schwineman sound like a complete idiot. But he really wasn't. What happened was this. At Thompson, Michigan, the harbor... At Thompson, Michigan Michigan, the harbor master kept a light burning on the south dock to help navigation. The pilot on the Mary Collins said, there's Thompson and steered straight for it, assuming he was headed into the harbor. But this particular light happened to be a kerosene lamp shining out of an upstairs window in a log cabin one half mile east of Little Harbor, Michigan. The Mary Collins was indeed wrecked on the limestone shore, but since the water was shallow, everyone on board was saved. Misadventures aside, Schwenemann, Schwen- was an experienced mar- was, uh, was an experienced mariner, and spent over fifty years sailing Lake Michigan. Somewhere along the line, Schwineman was given the affectionate nickname Captain Santa. He came by the jolly title, honestly. His slogan was the Christmas tree ship, my prices are the lowest. Not the catchiest of advertising phrases, perhaps, but what he lacked in originality, he made up for in generosity. Christmas trees sold for between fifty cents and one dollar, and many Chicagoans celebrated their holiday with a tree purchased from Captain Santa. But Schweidemann also gave trees away to poor folks on the waterfront and to the city's churches. The newspapers got wind of this habit of Schweidemann's, and reporters looking for a heartwarming story for the Christmas season wrote articles on the captain's charity. Schweidemann was intensely proud of the nickname he'd earned over the years. He clipped the articles out of the papers and kept them safe in his wallet. In addition to making sure everyone who boarded his ship went away with a tree, Captain Santa made sure they had a healthy meal as well, served on board the vessel. These meals often included roast bear and venison as the main course. Herman Schoonen, in his role as Captain Santa, was in good company. His older brother, August, was also a Christmas tree ship captain, working from 1876 to 1898. August, too, had earned an affectionate nickname for his diligence in bringing trees of the people of Chicago. Christmas tree Schooneman lost his life when his schooner sank in November of 1898 on a run from Michigan to Chicago, carrying a load of pine, spruce, and balsam. August and Herman had been exceptionally close, and Herman very much admired his older brother. August's loss only made Herman more staunchly determined to carry on the family tradition. In fact, not two weeks after August shipped, August's ship, August ship, the Estal, was lost. Herman made an extra run up to Michigan for a load of trees to replace the cargo that was now at the bottom of the lake. He knew the people of Chicago wanted their trees, and he knew he was the man to provide them. Herman Schuhenman couldn't afford to buy any of his scooters outright. For that matter, neither could August. There was no shame in this. Most of the sailors that worked the Great Lakes were not in a position to own their own vessels, and it was common practice for captains to band together and buy shares in a schooner. In 1910, Schoonermann bought a share of the Rouse Simmons, and by 1912 his interest had grown to one-eighth of the ship's value. The ship had been built specifically for Lake Michigan's lumber trade, and was named for its major financial backer, Rouse Simmons, founder of the Simmons Mattress Company. The Rouse Simmons Spent her entire life as a lumber ship. Over the years, she carried shingles, lathes, planking, railroad ties, telephone and telegraph poles, and cedar posts. The Ralph Simmons was purpose-built to serve as a lumber-hauling ship, but she was nearing the end of her useful life. Built in 1868, the schooner was already 42 years old when Shuneman acquired his share in her. That didn't bother him in the least. It meant she was a bargain. An older ship was not necessarily a liability in the lumber trade. In fact. Schooneman had built his career on buying shares in older vessels and squeezing the last bit of use out of them. Lumber was a popular cargo for those older ships for several very practical reasons. If the ship was leaky, lumber was a cargo that wouldn't be damaged if the ship took on water. Even Christmas trees wouldn't be bothered by a slosh or two of the lake water. Also, the inherent buoyancy of the wood may have helped these schooners make port safely in a fierce storm. As for the ship's age, well, What better way to use a ship in her declining years than bringing Christmas trees and happiness to hundreds of people every year? Partial ownership of the Ruth Simmons was so important to Schooneman for another reason. The captain made his living on the lake, but in the off-season, especially in the winter, when the Great Lakes were lashed with storms, he, like many other lake boat captains, turned to other businesses to supplement their, their income. In 1906, Schunemann owned, among other businesses, a saloon. Unfortunately, not all these businesses turned to profit, and the saloon forced Schunemann into bankruptcy. On January 4, 1907, he filed, and the debts to his creditors amounted over $1,300. Schunemann looked to his other businesses to bolster his finances. Herman owned 240 acres of wooded land in the upper peninsula of Michigan, where he harvested trees. The Shunemans spent part of every fall, about eight weeks or so, in their woods, selecting and felling the most beautiful of the trees. Shuneman also bought trees from Michigan locals, including Chippewa Indians living along Lake Michigan and Lake Superior. The Christmas tree trade also provided late-season employment to area lumberjacks. This bolstering of the local economy continued when Shunemans reached Chicago. He would set up sewing machines on the deck of his ship and hire 50 women to make wreaths and garland from the boughs that filled the hold. These 50 women would, by Christmas Eve, have made over 60,000 feet of garland. By 1912, Shuneman was one of the last Christmas tree merchants who still shipped his trees by schooner. Railroads were regularly used to transport trees by this time, and Captain Shuneman was not unaware of the benefits of shipping trees by railway. In fact, that's how he got the trees from the forest to the shoreline to load his ships. And Barbara would often take the train home to Chicago as Herman left Thompson to wait for him at home. But Schuneman felt that he was honoring the tradition his German neighbors and so many others had come to enjoy the romance of stepping onto the gently rocking deck of a ship to choose their Christmas tree for that year. Plus the wind to fill the billowing be- the white sails of the schooner was absolutely free. On november twenty second, nineteen twelve the Ralph Simmons left Thompson, Michigan, loaded with 5,500 evergreens for the final voyage of the season. November had the reputation of being a bad month for travel on the Great Lakes, but a Christmas tree merchant had little choice but to chance the trip. There was a storm brewing that was predicted to hit, something dur- to hit sometime during the week-long voyage, but all in all, November 12th had been relatively quiet weatherwise. wise had a good reason for taking a chance and making this last Christmas tree run. Snow had already fallen on the tree farms in Michigan and Wisconsin. Other late captains were spooked by the possibility of nasty weather. and hoped that this combination, leery competitors, and a general shortage of trees would lead to a huge profit for the year and solve his money troubles. So at noon, the Ralph Simmons sailed from Thompson Harbor, crammed with trees. Reports later varied as to how many men were on board in addition to the captain and crew. The ship carried several passengers. Shuneman had kindly invited some lumberjacks to hitch a ride with him back to Chicago to celebrate the holidays with friends and family. None of the men would live to see that Christmas. The bad omens had started earlier that day. While holding the ship, the sailors noticed that rats were deserting the ship. Some recalled that rats had bailed out of the ship in Chicago, too, as she was headed up to Michigan. The Ralph Simmons was scheduled to set sail on a Friday, bad juju for any voyage. And the horseshoe nail to the, the davit post had worked itself free of one of its nails and was now hanging with, hanging with the tines pointed straight down, letting all the luck run out. That night, a storm overtook the schooner. Knowing that the lashing winds and cresting waves were a concern, Schooneman sent two sailors up to the deck, to check that the trees there were securely tied down. A rogue wave slept over the deck, and the two men were knocked overboard, along with some bundled trees in a small boat. Schooneman had little time to mourn the loss of the two of his crew. Since the schooner was slightly lighter, he thought he could make landfall. He steered for the safety of Bailey's Harbor, but the storm was growing more furious and deadly by the minute. Spotters at two United States life-saving stations, an antique version of the Modern Coast Guard, saw a ship they thought was the Royal Simmons on november twenty third. It limped past Kou Wisconsin, its distress flags flying, its sails and rig crusted with and rigging crusted with ice. The crew at Kouani saw it first and telephoned the crew at two rivers to the south. The rescuers at Kouani only had rowboats, and by the time the storm was a fierce gale, and by that time the storm was a fierce gale, they knew it would have been impossible, suicidal even, for them to brave the tempest. The station at Two Rivers had a gasoline-powered surfboat and was better equipped to handle a rescue attempt in the teeth of the storm. But by the time the powerboat motored out to look for the ship, the Ralph Simmons was nowhere to be seen. The crew of the rescue boat, led by Captain George Sog, could see nearly to Kewanee, but there simply was nothing to see. The rescue boat ran eight miles north, then headed out into the lake for an hour. They found nothing. No ship, no signals, no wreckage. By the time the snow was starting to fall more heavily, okay, by that time the snow was starting to fall more heavily, soon it was snowing so hard they could hardly see from one end of their 30-foot-long boat to the other. One of the rescue crew, Oscar Anderson, later recalled their fear of being run over by the very ship they were looking for if she happened to rise up before the wind. So the little powerboat headed back the two rivers, its crew heartbroken at the failed rescue. The storm grew ever stronger. Several ships were lost, besides the Rouse Simmons. The storm that battered the Great Lakes started in the late night hours of November 22, 1912, did not spare land either. The storm morphed into a blizzard with high winds. The winds did severe damage in Chicago, blowing in windows and stripping shingles off roofs. A Lincoln Avenue streetcar narrowly escaped being crushed when a sign 50 feet high was blown off a building on Fullerton Avenue. A few days later, a bottle washed up on the lake shore at Sheboygan. It had been corked with a small chunk of pine wood. Inside the bottle was a rolled-up piece of paper bearing the last sad message from Captain Santa. Friday, everybody, goodbye. I guess we are all through. During the night, a small boat washed overboard. Involved, and Steve lost too. God help us. Another note was found washed ashore near the end of July, 1913. This one was purportedly from Captain Charles Nelson, the first mate of the Ralph Simmons. It read, November 23, 1912. These lines were written at 10.30 p.m. Scooter Ralph Simmons ready to go down about 20 miles southeast of Two Rivers Point between 15 and 20 miles offshore. All hands lashed to one line. Goodbye, Captain Charlie Nelson. Both of these notes, it must be said, may be hoaxes. As much as people wanted closure, it's difficult to imagine a sailor fighting for his life against blowing wind and frigid water, his fingers crusting with freezing snow, taking the time to scribble a note, stuff it into a bottle after finding an empty bottle, whittle a cork out of a pine, and chuck it overboard. Besides, the second note, the one attributed to Captain Nelson, sounds awfully sp- specific. Hoaxes or not, these possible final grabs of communication with solid land of the last real information anyone would have about the fate of the Ralph Simmons for many years. Christmas trees washed up on the shoreline for years after the wreck. Trunks for some of these trees were sliced into rounds and turned into ornaments. A Christmas tree was painted in the middle of each circle with the words "Ralph Simmons, 1868-1912, to card below. It's fitting that instead of being enjoyed for just a single season, some of the trees Captain Santa had been bringing home on his final voyage now served as family heirlooms, living well beyond one holiday and being enjoyed for countless more years. In 1923, a fisherman working near Two Rivers, Wisconsin, brought up Schoonerman's wallet wrapped in oil skin and his net. Oddly enough, the fishing boat Whose net stag, Captain Santa's wallet, was named the reindeer. Inside the wallet were business cards, an expense sheet, and a newspaper clipping about Captain Santa. On Friday of the same week, the wallet was found. On Friday of the same week the wallet was found, Captain Manville, the fond of the fishing tug monitor, brought in a much grizzly relic in his nets, a human skull. It was the third he'd found, and that's not counting the entire skeleton he saw tangled in his nets once. The skeleton fell to pieces as the net was being hauled aboard, and the bones sank beneath the waters again. The full story of the fate of Ralph Simmons wasn't known until 54 years later. On October 30th, 1971, a driver from Milwaukee named Kent Bell Richard discovered the wreck. In 160, I'm sorry, a diver from Milwaukee named Kent Bell Richard discovered the wreck in 165 feet of water. 12 miles northwest of two rivers. An archaeological study of the wreck painted a clearer picture of the schooner's final hours. The windlass was in the middle of being prepared to lower the port side anchor. Something went wrong, and the crew was trying to hold the schooner into the wind by dropping the anchor. But given the depth of the water and the amount of chain, it would have been impossible for the ship to anchor safely in the lake. It's also known that the Ralph Simmons was dangerously overloaded with trees. Some reports indicated that the schooner was riding very low in the water when she left Thompson, Thompson Harbor, laboring under the weight of the trees in her hold and on her decks. It's quite likely that the estimated eight-foot-tall pile of trees on her deck destabilized the schooner and led to, the, led to a domino fall, fall, a domino fall of events that ended with the vessel sinking. When the ship was found, archaeologists noticed right away that the navigational wheel was gone. They wondered what had become of it. After all, it weighed 400 pounds. Parts of it were steel, and parts cat's iron. It couldn't have gone far from the wreck site. When the wheel finally did turn up, dragged to the surface in a fishing net, one of the mysteries of the wreck was finally solved. It had long been theorized that the actual wreck was caused by the bundles of trees on the deck getting encrusted with snow and freezing like spray and turning into blocks of solid ice, which then tore loose and turned into deadly battering rams, ripping the wheel off and leaving the ship with no steering capabilities. When the wheel was finally discovered, the restorers found that many of the handles of the wheel were catastrophically bent, with some missing altogether. The truth was revealed at last. With a new theory, the mizzenmast, driver boom, the support for the mainsail, had snapped its rigging, then swung wildly until it crashed into the wheel. People had wondered for years why the Ralph Simmons didn't put in the two rivers and why the rescue boat from that station had never been able to locate the Foundering ship. The reason Captain Scheunen didn't steer for safety was because he couldn't steer for safety. As Rochelle Pennington, author of the historic Christmas Tree ship, put it, Once the wheel was gone, the Simmons was fighting for its life, with both hands tied behind his back. Divers to the wreck of the Roe Simmons say the trees are still stacked in the hold. If you look closely... You can see that the trees lower down in the piles still have their needles attached. The loss of the Ralph Simmons marked the beginning of the end for schooners in the Christmas tree trade. These lovely, graceful vessels were the last survivors of the golden age of sail. Schooners like the Ralph Simmons were a dying breed, already being pushed aside by the march of progress in steam technology. By 1920, the Christmas tree trade on the Great Lakes was all but extinct. But here is the amazing thing about this whole story, even better than August Schooneman being called Christmas Tree Schooneman, or Herman picking up the nickname Captain Santa. With the tragic loss of both men, August in 1898 and Herman in 1912, the women and their families carried on their legacies. Barbara Schooneman was determined that her husband's good works should not die with him. W.C. Holmes, who owned a Chicago shipping company, was a good friend of the family and Herman had been commanding his ships for years. Holmes donated the schooner Oneida for Barbara and her daughters to use to sell the trees just a couple of weeks after the Ralph Simmons was lost. Herman's oldest daughter, Elsie, was selling trees from the deck of Oneida when she was interviewed by the Chicago inter newspaper on December 11, 1912, when the news of the sinking was still fresh. Before setting off from Thompson, Herman Schoenman had sent two railroad cars cars of ships to Chicago. These, in addition to the trees washed up on shore, represented the stock which Barbara and her daughter sold that bleak Christmas of 1912. Some of the trees that washed ashore were brought to Chicago as sales of those trees were used to benefit the families of the sailors lost when the Ralph Simmons went down. The next year, Barbara and her daughters were once again on on their property in the Upper Peninsula. They chartered another boat, appropriately named the Fearless, and carried on the Schooneman legacy. And one year after the loss of her husband, the Chicago Daily News interviewed Barbara Schooneman for their November 28, 1913 edition, as she was preparing to load a schooner with Christmas trees. Barbara made her desires clear. We'll load the trees on it and tie up at the old dock, and our customers will come to us, as they have in former years. They know where to find us. The Rouse is gone, and her captain is gone, and the crew is gone. But Christmas will find survivors still on deck, and Chicago will have her Christmas trees as long as the Shunem is last. It was a promise Barbara kept. She celebrated her last Christmas in 1932. Pastor Jacob Pister wrote this tribute. She is here to help bring joy this year like never before. She dispenses Christmas trees. You all know her. It is good Mother Schoenemann, the widow of ill-fated Captain Schoenemann, the Christmas shipman who never returned to the shores, but with his great cargo of Christmas trees went down into the deep on that terrible night of storm. And since then, Mother Schoenemann has felt the urge to carry on. Barbara Schoenemann passed away in June 1933. The Chicago Tribune printed her obituary, which included this comment. Mother Schooneman was known and loved by thousands and hundreds of thousands throughout our great metropolis. After Barbara died, her daughters Elsie, Hazel, and Pearl continued to carry on the business for a few years more. The Christmas tree ships no longer sailed like Michigan, and the trees were brought in by rail. But the store at 1641 North LaSalle Street, quaintly and poignantly named Captain and Mrs. H. Schooneman's daughters, still did a brisk business during the holidays. The three sisters sisters lived in a grand old Victorian house that had been divvied up into separate flats, just a short walk across the street and down the block from their store. And the oldest daughter, Elsie, also picked up a nickname bestowed upon her by the grateful people of Chicago. An accomplished sailor in her own right, she proudly carried on the family's legacy of bringing trees to the city. By the time she was married in 1917, Elsie had become known as the Queen of Christmas Trees. She and her husband, Arthur Roberts, were married in a church, right next to a huge Christmas tree Elsie herself had brought from the woods. Over the years, the disappearance of the Ruth Simmons spawned legends that grew larger with time. Many sailors on Lake Michigan swore they saw the doomed schooner, her sails and rigging crusted with ice, still trying in vain to complete the trip to Chicago. Rochelle Pennington, author of The Historic Christmas Tree Ship, writes of a conversation she had with Joyce Piffin. Mrs. Piffin was a retired teacher who lived in a small stone cottage on the shore of Lake Michigan, right next to the water. She said she had seen the Phantom ship twice, once at dusk, once at night. She described the ship as just sort of there, floating in the air. Hazy, isolated, misty, white. Barbara Schoonerman, Herman's willow, was laid to rest in Chicago the sake of Park Cemetery. Visitors to her gravesite claim to have smelled the distinctive scent of evergreens in the air. The story of the wreck of the Ralph Simmons holds a special place in the lore of the Great Lakes. Other ships were lost during the storm on November 1912, which many late captains swore was the worst snowstorm they'd ever seen. But the Ruth Simmons was special. It was the Christmas tree ship, piloted by the beloved Captain Santa. The crew of this ship were willing to risk their lives to bring holiday cheer to the people of Chicago, even the people who couldn't afford to buy a Christmas tree. The legend and legacy of the Christmas tree ship lives on even today. Every year, the U.S. Coast Guard cutter, Mackinac, makes the journey from Northern Michigan to Chicago, bringing a load of Christmas trees to deliver to the city's poor. Cool story. The Black and Blue Boys. Winners in Wisconsin are long and brutal. And the winter of 1840 was particularly bone-chilling, not only because of the bitter cold, but also because it was in 1840 that a bar fight took the lives of two teenage boys, and the legend of a terrifying haunting began. Ridge Road in southern Wisconsin was a 25-mile stretch of old military trackway. The mining communities at Blue Mounds and Dodgeville sat at each end of the road. Ridgeway, another mining camp, sat roughly in the middle between the two towns. At least a dozen saloons operated along Ridge Road in those days. Rowdies from the mining camps at both ends of the road frequented the taverns. These were rough places, and rough men hung out in them. Bar fights were inevitable, with beatings, knifings, robberies, and even murder being commonplace. One winter night in 1840, two young men, barely into their teens, had the sheer bad luck to stumble into one of these bars, a dive called McKillop's Saloon. They discovered far too late that it was a clubhouse for thugs and bullies, and they were not welcome there. The boys had been out in the bitter winter night. No one knows why. When they saw the welcoming glow of firelight through the tavern's windows, they hurried to get in the warmth of the crude building. Anything, even the dubious welcome of a saloon, would be better than suffering a moment longer in the biting cold outside. They found a welcome, but not the one they'd hoped for. Instead of stepping in in an inn for weary travelers, the boys had walked into one of the savage bars on Ridge Road, a place where life was cheap. The boys had been there just a short time, hardly long enough to melt the snow off their boots when the trouble started. One of the local tough guys pretended to take offense at the little pipsqueaks hanging out in his bar. The tavern was full of rowdy, drunk, belligerent miners. Barely any excuse was needed for a bar fight. The two teens were terrified at the mayhem they caused, just by trying to get warm on a freezing winter night. Cowering in terror, they were utterly unprepared for the violence that raged around them. Sensing weakness, the bullies attacked. One miner grabbed the younger boy, punched him in the stomach, then brought a knee up into his face when the boy doubled over. Frantic with pain, blood streaming down his face, the boy swung wildly. A lucky hit smacked his attacker in the eye, and the thug shrieked with rage. He grabbed the boy by his shirt front and threw him into a huge fireplace. The boy stumbled and fell, landing in the middle of the brightly burning logs. Flames snapped, and the glowing red logs came apart in a shower of sparks under the boy's weight. His clothes caught, and he was burned alive. The older brother stood stunned for a moment. His hands clapped over his ears to drown out the sounds of his brother's screams, his eyes wide open with helpless horror. Then he realized his own danger. He ducked and weaved to escape his attackers and made it to the door just ahead of the grasping hands. He yanked open the door and stumbled out into the darkness, sobbing. A few days later, his dead body was found in a nearby field. Sadly, he had escaped the bar fight, only to freeze to death that night. No one ever found out who the boys were or why they had been wandering Ridge Road that night. But the boys took their revenge, and soon enough, everyone knew their tale, if not their identities. From 1850 to 1910, the two murdered teens made Ridgeway their hellish home. The phantoms were so dangerous that soon people began to travel in groups, fearing to be alone on the road after dark. The boys didn't care who they attacked in their hunger for vengeance. No one was safe, and those they attacked at night were lucky if they survived the encounter. The murdered boys were fiendishly inventive in their attacks. They appeared in a wide variety of shapes. They took the form of a herd of pigs, or a flock of sheep, or a pack of dogs. Sometimes they took human form, manifesting as a man with a whip, headless men, women young and old, even as themselves, burnt black and frozen blue. One brother even attacked a man in the form of a ball of white-hot flame. Even with these vicious attacks being common knowledge, some skeptics dismissed the idea that the murdered boys were behind them. John Lewis was one of those who scoffed at the idea of savage ghosts. He was a butcher by trade, and he was known throughout the state as a champion wrestler. He earned the nickname, The Strangler, because of his fondness for chokeholds. John Lewis was a fearsome grizzly bear of a man, and he was not going to be cowed by figments of other people's imaginations. Lewis was headed home one night after helping a neighbor with his butchering when he heard the encounter, when he had an encounter with the Rageway ghost. According to an article in the New York Times, published on December 7, 1902, Lewis was crossing the field when he was confronted by a dark, shapeless mass that moved to attack him. A neighbor later found Lewis half delirious, propped up against a fieldstone wall. He said he had been thrown up in the air and whirled around, as though he'd been sucked into the middle of a tornado. The neighbor helped Lewis home, half carrying the big man. A few hours later, Lewis died. To the end, he swore that he had been victim of a supernatural attack. In 1910, the town of Ridgeway caught fire and was largely destroyed in the blaze. Some say that sightings of the Ridgeway ghost ended after the 1910 fire. Others claim the hauntings have continued and that they follow a cycle of roughly 40 years, escalating in the 1890s, the 1930s, and the 1970s. Sightings were reported as late as 1993. The two teenage ghosts may still be out there, waiting for an unsuspecting traveler to happen by. Ghost Rider of the Revolution The winter winds whistled around the cabin in South Carolina woods, but inside the snug home, all was well. The cabin's owner, David Miles, was a Quaker and held himself and his family aloof from the fighting that raged around them. The Revolutionary War was a necessary evil, but Miles prayed it would not touch his two teenage children. Nineteen-year-old Charity, David's daughter, heard the light hoofbeats of a horse just outside the rear of the cabin. Her heart leapt and she jumped up from her chair, leaving her knitting forgotten on the table. A sharp knock on the door brought her father and brother to their feet as well. Charity eased the door open just a crack. Young Henry Galbraith, a scout with the Continental Army, stood outside. Charity grabbed his hand and pulled him into the safety of the cabin. Tears, both of joy and of worry, stood in Charity's eyes. Henry, I almost wish you hadn't come. It's too dangerous. You can't keep coming here, not with General Tarleton's redcoats patrolling the area. You know I love you, but you must stay away. Henry Benton kissed Charity. I can't, love. I have to see you, or I'll go mad. Besides, no one knows these woods better than I do. I'll be safe, I promise. David Miles pulled a chair closer to the fire, and the young patriot plumped into... Plumped into it with a grateful smile. Henry enjoyed the company of Charity's family, and he loved Charity. After this war was over, after the Americans won their freedom, he'd make Charity his wife. Charity poured four mugs of chicory coffee, and Henry wrapped his cold fingers around his mug, happy for the warmth. He gazed up at Charity. My love, I'll come back for you. One year from now, whether or not the war is over, I will come back. Charity nodded. I will wait for you, Henry. David took a sip of his coffee and then stiffened. Over the sounds of the wind, he heard the pounding of horses' hooves, several of them. The Tories were out searching for the young scout. Henry tossed his coffee into the fire, and Sherry hastily dried the mug on her apron and drew it into the cabinet. Her brother rushed to the back of the cabin and, with the skill of long practice, removed a plank from the wall near the floor. Henry squirmed through the opening into the backyard, where his horse waited. Scarcely had Charity's brother replaced the board when a barrage of knocks came on the cabin door. Rough voices called out, Open up in the name of of King George. Gun butts smashed against the door, which sagged inwards under the blows. Three Tories burst into the cabin, their muskets held at the ready. Where is he? One of the soldiers demanded. David Miles, still seated by the fire, closed his Bible and calmly took a sip of coffee. Coffee, I have no idea who you might be looking for. My children and I are the only ones here. A flurry of fainting hoofbeats, and the soldiers knew their prey was lost. They mounted up and thundered after the scout, but the thickly falling snow hid his tracks well. The fighting dragged on. Weeks turned into months with no word from Henry. Even the Continental soldiers who sometimes passed through had no news of him. One night, Charity was sitting up late after her father and brother had gone to bed. Henry's words still echoed in her heart. One year from now, I will come back. It hadn't been a year, but she longed to see Henry again, no matter the danger. She reached for her shawl and stepped out of the cabin. She felt oddly drawn to the edge of the clearing. At the edge of the woods, a strange bluish light began to glow. Raising her hand to her eyes to shield them, Charity saw a movement in the light. A rider came galloping out of the woods. He was dressed all in black. The better to blend into the shadows. He was riding hard, intent on some urgent business. He didn't stop at the cabin. But urged his foam-flecked horse onward. The rider hadn't even glanced at Charity, but she knew him anyway. At that moment, she knew Henry Galbraith was dead. Five long years passed. The revolution, begun in, the hope, begun in hope, ended in victory. David Miles and his family gave thanks to the ter- thanks that the terrible war was over. One December night, five years after the the last seen Henry, the family was once again enjoying a cozy winter evening together. Charity still carried a flame of hope in her heart. Maybe she'd been wrong about the identity of the ghostly rider. Maybe the ragged rider and his sweating horse had been a trick in the moonlight. She put on a new dress and joined her father and brother, hoping that evening Henry would keep his promise and return to her at last. The cabin door slammed open, and a shining light filled the room. Henry Galbraith stood in the brilliance. His army uniform hung in tatters from his broad shoulders, and his eyes were raw sockets in his haggard face. His ghostly gaze fell on Charity, and she cowered in terror in spite of herself. Then, just as suddenly as he had appeared, the specter was gone. Charity Miles never did marry. She never found out for certain what happened to her Henry, either. Being a scout, his whereabouts were often unknown. It was assumed that he had been killed in battle. The cabin in which Henry Galbraith pledged his love to Charity Miles is long gone. But legends say that when winter winter winds blow cold on his Sorry, but legends say that when winter winds blow cold on a December night and the snow falls thick, a ghostly horse and rider still gallop through the woods, forever carrying news for Washington's army. Vermont Resurrections One of the most disturbing stories in this part of the book has no ghosts at all. I think you'll find that the creep factor more than makes up for the lack of spooks. An article appeared on the front page of the Montpil- on the Montpelier Argus and Patriot on December 21st, 1887, titled, A Strange Tale. The article was written by a contributor whose byline was known only as AM. The events in the article took place in a small mountain town about 20 miles from Montpelier. Vermonters are frugal people, and this particular bunch had discovered a way to ease the hard times of winter by reducing the number of mouths that needed to be fed during the cold, cruel months. They developed a technique that was part Vermont folk medicine, part Yankee thrift, and part outright creepy weirdness. AM wrote that the following tale was excerpted from Uncle William's diary. January 7th. I went on the mountain today and witnessed what to me was a horrible sight. It seems that the dwellers there who are unable either from who are see, hang on, make sure I got this right. Who are unable either from age or other reason to contribute to the support of their families are disposed of in the winter months in a manner that will shock the one who reads this diary, unless that person lives in that vicinity. I will describe what I saw. Six persons, four men and two women. One of the men a cripple about thirty years old. The other five, five the other five past the age of usefulness, lay on the earthly floor of the cabin, drugged in, in, in drug in, in, in drug in, in, in dang it drug and insensibility, I don't know why I can't say that word, insensibility, drug into insensibility, while members of their family were gathered about them in apparent indifference. In a short time, the unconscious bodies were inspected by several old people who said they are ready. They were then stripped of all their clothing except a single garment. Then the bodies were carried outside and laid on logs, exposed to the bitter cold mountain air. The operation hadn't been delayed several days for suitable weather. It was night when the bodies were carried out, and the full moon occasionally obscured by flying clouds, shone on their upturned ghastly faces, and a horrible fascination kept me by kept me by the bodies as long as I could endure the severe cold. Soon the noses, ears, and fingers began to turn white, then the limbs and face assumed to tell a tellow look. I could stand the cold no longer and went inside, where I found the friends in a cheerful conversation. In about an hour I went out and looked at the bodies. They were fast freezing. I could not shut out the sight of these freezing bodies outside, neither could I bear to be in the darkness. But I piled on the wood in the cavernous fireplace and seated on a shingle block past the dreary night, terror-stricken by the horrible sights i had witnessed. A common grave had been dug for the bodies before the ground had frozen. The corpses were placed side by side on a bed of straw in a ten-by-six-foot wooden box. When they were judged ready, the helpers placed cloths over the faces of each corpse, and packed more straw around the bodies. The wooden lid was fastened securely on the box. The box was then lowered in the pit and covered. A layer of straw was put down in the layer of branches to keep the scavengers away from the bodies. And the weeks that followed, the Vermont winter set in with its accustomed fury. Snowdrifts up to 20 feet high buried the sleepers for the next five months. January 8th. We shall want our bed to plant our corn next spring, said a youngish-looking woman, the wife of one of the frozen men and if you want to see them resuscitated, you come here about the 10th of next May. The narrator was sickly fascinated by the whole process, and when spring rolled around, or greening up as they call it in Vermont, he just couldn't stay away. He had come back to see the grisly results of the winter's experiment. May 10th. The men commenced work at once, some shoveling away at the snow and others tearing away the brush. Soon the box was visible. The cover was taken off, the layers of straw removed, and the bodies, frozen and apparently lifeless, lifted out and laid on the snow. Large troughs made of hemlock logs were placed nearby, filled with tepid water into which the bodies were separately placed, with the head slightly raised. Boiling water was then poured in, into the troughs from kettles hung on poles nearby, until the water in the trough was as hot as I could hold in my hand. Hemlock bows bowels had been put in the boiling water in such quantities that they had given the water the color of wine. After lying in this bath for about an hour, color began to return to the bodies, when all hands began rubbing and chafing them. This continued about another hour when a slight twitching of the muscles of the face and limbs, followed by audible gasps, showed that life was not quenched and that vitality was returning. Spirits were then given in small quantities and allowed to trickle down their throats. Soon they could swallow and more was given to them when their eyes opened, and they began to talk, and finally sat up in their bathtubs. They were then taken out and assisted to the house, where, after a hearty dinner, they seemed as well as ever, and in no wise injured, but rather refreshed by their long sleep of four months. It is not clear whether this was an isolated incident or if this was something that people hang on that people did on a regular basis. The story was re- was revisited for Vermont Magazine from Vermont Magazine in the 1930s. Editor Judson Hale, famous for his tales of New England, wrote that he spoke with a Vermont farm couple that had heard of the macabre practice. Surely folks of the 20th century wouldn't put any stock in such a wild tale. Hale asked the couple if either of them really believed the frozen death story. Certainly do, the husband replied. Then the wife added, The only point I doubt is the thawing out. Okay, Frozen Charlottes. I'll be the first to admit that dolls, especially antique dolls, can be really unnerving. But there is a certain Victorian-era doll that has a backstory that takes creepiness to the next level. These dolls were made from one piece of unglazed porcelain rather than the usual biscay limbs and cloth bodies of fancy dolls of that era. They were pure white, with only a tiny bit of color in their eyes, lips, cheeks, and hair. They were originally made in Germany in 1850. Since they were made of porcelain without any cloth parts or stuffing, they were first marketed as children's bath toys, but their minimal coloring and immovable limbs soon inspired another interpretation. In 1843, the poet Seba Smith wrote a poem titled Young Charlotte. It was first published in The Rover, a main newspaper, on December 28, 1843, with the gruesome title, A Corpse Going to a Ball. The ballad was based on the true story of a young woman who had frozen to death while riding with her boyfriend one New Year's Eve, an incident reported in the New York Observer in 1840. The poem was a cautionary tale about the dangers of vanity. Charlotte was a fashion-conscious, flighty young thing. She lived with her family in the mountains, with no close neighbors, so she didn't have much opportunity to socialize. So when she was invited to a New Year's Eve party with her sweetheart, she jumped at the chance to show off her new silk gown made to the latest fashion, a low-cut number which displayed her bare shoulders. She climbed into the open sleigh and settled herself for the ride to the party. Her mother tried to talk to Charlotte into putting on a cloak, but the young lady refused. After all, no one would be able to admire her lovely fashionable gown if she was covered up with a cloak. The 15-mile ride to the party was a cold bit of journey. The night was frigid and the wind whipped around the seats of the open sleigh. Several times, Charlotte's beau offered her the use of the warm bearskin robe he kept in the back of the sleigh, each time she refused. As her voice grew fainter, as they neared the party, the boyfriend slowed the horse. He was concerned as he hadn't heard a sound from Charlotte for the past half hour. At last, they reached the house where the party was being held. The boyfriend brought the sleigh to a stop and reached for Charlotte's hand to help her down. Her hand was icy cold. During the ride of the party, she'd frozen solid. The small porcelain dolls with the removable white limbs soon became known as frozen Charlottes. The dolls cost one penny, and they were ridiculously popular. Many were even sold with their own miniature coffin and shroud. That's something you're not likely to find in Barbie's townhouse. Okay, guys, I'm going to wrap up for the night. Going to go a little earlier. Hope you enjoyed this. And uh, I'll be back Sunday reading from this book. Let me do this. It's a pretty good book. Of Christmas terror stories, right? Anyway, um, I hope you enjoyed the book. I, I actually enjoyed it too. But anyway, um, oh, let me get adjusted here. I kind of sunk in the chair. But anyway, uh, hopefully we'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow Nancy Mats will be with us. And we're going to be talking about what to say when you meet a ghost. Or when you come in contact with a ghost. What, 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 you know, the kinds of things you should say. Because sometimes, you know, you'll see a ghost and you'll just kind of stare at it and it disappears in front of you and you don't know what to say. So we're going to be talking about stuff like that. You know, how they actually talk to a ghost. Things like that. Anyway, I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to take care of something in the chat room right now. Give me a minute. Okay. Yeah, I see it. Okay. Anyway, I will see you tomorrow, 6.30 Pacific. Have a good rest of night. See ya.